we could be like, hey, this is Greg Henderson from DutchPodcast.com. <laughs> I say. Find a loophole. Austin, Austin Bleef, Junge. <laughs> I don't even know any That's Dutch. It. Yeah. That's it, mate. Thank you for joining us again on another Out of the Saddle podcast. Um, I did hint last week at who our special guest was. It's the one man that can ride 54 and a half kilometers in one hour. And he goes by the name of Sir Bradley Wiggins. Um, he sat down with us and uh, basically chatted about his progression from his idols, uh, the guys he looked up to, the guys who then he wanted to beat, uh, his dominance on the, on the velodrome, the transition to become the dominant Tour de France um, stage race rider, and then again his transition back to the velodrome. So it's uh, it was a, it was a really interesting chat, um, very insightful. And then there was a special special phone call at the end. Uh, our, our young friend Chuck here. He uh, Chuck, you tell him what happened. Well, apparently Team Sky have been really keeping their eye on me, and uh, you know they're not just they don't just care about British riders or European riders. They're looking for masters level international riders to really expand their program you know so they offered me the the big fat contract so you know they think i'm gonna be working for Froome next year but really my secret ambition is he'll be working for me after the first week of the tour but you know you've seen that you've seen that play out many times before so i'd just like to say congratulations on the uh on the new contract chucky and uh I still hope we can do our podcast together. Anyway, guys, sit back, relax, have a listen as uh, Suigo and I have a good old-fashioned chin wag. Cheers, guys. Hello. Is that uh, is that one Sir Bradley Wiggins? It certainly is. How are you going? How are you doing? Are we live? Are we live? <laughs> we're live. We're live. We're, we're live. Check, check, one, two, check, one, two. What's the crack? What are we doing? Well, we're um, just, it's just a basic, simple podcast. We just talk, shoot the shit for a while. I'm sitting here with a mate of mine. He used to be a uh, teammate of mine, Chuck Coyle, a good old fashioned American. Nice to meet you, sir. Yeah. How are you doing? You all right? Doing well. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just we've we've been chatting to a few guys, and uh, we just had yeah know, blah blah blah. We're just talking talking blah, but it's just I'm just really appreciate the uh, the time right, that you, you can set aside for us, mate. <laughs> I know you're a busy man. Yeah, I'm not too busy. I'm, I've done all my work for the day. Righto. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Sir Wigo. You don't mind me calling you Sir Wigo? Um, but uh, it's uh, it's getting a little bit late over there. But thank you very much for taking the phone call. That's all right. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks mate. for having me. <laughs> You're welcome, mate. It's one of the <laughs> most famous podcasts on the planet. So uh, yeah, we've got. I think we've got about oh, how many listeners? Oh man, we're gonna we're gonna be in the hundreds. <laughs> we're gonna be in the hundreds, mate. So we're getting up there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, so not quite as many as Lance, no. No, I haven't quite cracked it, but you know we're getting there. It's, you know, it takes time. It takes time. It does take time, and they're having a 
a bit of a comeback podcast, aren't they? You know, there was it. There was podcasts were very two thousand and six, and now they're kind of back in everyone's everyone's listening to podcasts again. Well, They've kind of made a resurgence. For me, that I find. I just can't be bothered getting on the computer and typing a blog, you know, like everyone mm. used to love to blog and express their feelings and get emotional and yada, yada. It's just not me. I'd just rather just have a chat and say, what's up. So, you know, yeah. that's basically why I got into it was just fuck. Let's just have a chat to Wigo, see what he's up to. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, um, we could go, I mean, I'm not going to about to go through your, Palmares, because that's going to take up the 30 minutes. So let's, um, your first uh, pro contract. Yeah, so my first pro contract was, um, officially was uh, Francis de Jour in 2000, end of 2001. Um, uh, FDJ, my bad, my bad. I thought it was Covidus. Okay, FDJ, yeah, good. Yeah, so FDJ, so I went there at 21 years of age, but I'd actually signed the year before after the Sydney Olympics with Linda McCartney under Sean Yates was the manager then. Um, you know, with Dave McKenzie, Max Shandry, all those guys. Yep. Um, and it was getting bigger and better for the previous, the, you know, the, the following year. So I signed for them. And then obviously that all folded in January when the guys all came back from the tour down under. So I went back with the British team for another year. We rode a whole load of races in France and stuff for the track program. Um, and, I managed to get into a breakaway in the, uh, a race called Circuit de Means um, and was in a break with Jackie Duran one day. We were away for 100 mile and I gave him as good as I got off him and we got caught and that was it. I not, thought nothing of it and then a couple of months later, Francis Dujour got in contact through being that breakaway that Jackie had, had said that this guy was really strong, you should have a look at him and then we went to the track worlds in Antwerp that year and got second in the team pursuit. And I signed at the Worlds in Antwerp with Yvonne Madio. So I, I went off to France then and um, for, the, for the first year in 2002, which was a bit of an eye-opener. But I, mean, I was in the team with uh, my sort of kind of guy I looked up to at the time in Brad McGee um, and had watched him over the years, obviously, on the track. And, and in those days, obviously now, there are a lot of riders in professional teams that have come from the track. But in those days, there wasn't that many, really, that, that doubled up, especially with the track being, as it was then, summer sports. So the Worlds used to be in August or September. Yeah. And it, it would quite often clash with the road. So road teams weren't really, you either chose between the road or the track. But Brad was the only one that was really had the freedom through La Francis de Jure to go off and, and was able to concentrate on the Olympics or he'd ride the odd world championship. Or um, The only other one who was doing the same sort of thing was... Stuart O'Grady. Um, so they, they kind of were pioneers in a way in, in pro teams looking up and seeing these track rides and thinking, well, if they can do a 420 pursuit, then we should look at these guys for the road because it means they've got an engine. So they kind of paved the way for a lot of us. And then through Brad doing that, I managed to get onto La France du Jour and it kind of took off from there, really. Um, so that I spent two years there at La France du Jour. And... Um... Yeah, so that was uh, that's where it's all started. I've got uh, one just side question. I'm interested to know who, out of uh, Jackie Duran and Shane Archibald, who do you reckon's got the best mullet? <laughs> oh, actually, there's a few of them Russians that popped up over the years <laughs> that 
had some cracking ones. Um, I don't know if you remember Markov or Morkov or whatever his actual real name was on the track program <laughs> road back in the day. You know, he was the only rider I ever knew whose age went down over the years. <laughs> he was supposedly, he was 20 years old in Atlanta when he finished fourth. And then four years later in Sydney, he was supposed to be 16. So it was this kind of bizarre, but he had a fantastic mullet. But I think Shane, Shane again, was a pioneer in, in mullets and he changed the game for a lot of people. He's, he made him way more acceptable. He's kept it real, hasn't he? And he's like, there's been, you know, that, that many bets that he's lost to shave the mullet off. And he's just gone, no, nah, I'm not shaving it. It's not coming off. So, yeah. it's, uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to give credit where credit's due. He's, um, he's stuck to the, the moulet. Definitely, definitely. Great. Okay. So, uh, oh, my microphone just stopped. That's fantastic. Um, so then it was, uh, after that, it was um, COVID this year? No, then I went to Credit Agricole for two years. <laughs> Do you remember them? So I uh, spent two years at La France du Jour. I was, uh, the second year at La France du Jour, I was, I won the World Championship in Stuttgart in the individual pursuit. Um, and obviously it was pre-Olympic year in 2004. So, you know, going into the Olympics, it was all about, you know, taking on Brad McGee and trying to win the Olympic gold and, and, you know, stop him doing what he'd been aiming to do for six or seven years. You know, two Olympiads before that, obviously, he was third in Atlanta, third in Sydney with a broken collarbone. So this was the one that he really wanted to win. And obviously, I was in the same team as him and all the talk in the team was constant, you know, how great Brad was. And I kind of got sick of hearing just how yeah. great he was because I kind of knew how great he was anyway. And I looked up to him a bit and and I always felt like I was going to be sort of second fiddle to him. He'd won a stage in the Tour de France that year. He took the yellow jersey and won the prologue in 2003. And obviously I'd won the Worlds and he didn't do the Worlds that year. Um, so going into 2004, my mentor at the time was Chris Boardman. And, and he advised, you know, he said, I think, you know, we should look at you changing teams and just having a specific program building up to the Olympics. And I can have a word with Roger Leger, who Chris spent his whole pro career out with Gann. And so, really, the deal was done in about a week. And, you know, I went off there and, and signed for Credit Agricole with a view to focusing for the World Championships. Uh, sorry, for the Olympic for Games. Olympic and Games. I didn't do the World Championships in 2004. They were in Melbourne. So, I stayed and did uh, sort of a road season up till about June time. What and age then were you focused. then, bro? You must have been pretty young. I was 24 then. Yeah, so, right. yeah, I was uh, 20 in Sydney and then 24 in in Athens. And so you took the, obviously the individual, you, you took him down, was it was was that the final? Yeah, so I've obviously met him in the final and I'd been quickest in all the rounds and, and you know, it was kind of so kind of, it was written in the stars back then really because you know, as I said, watched Brad on the TV over the years and to be in the Olympic final with him against sort of the great Bradley McGee at that time and and, and managing to beat him and, you know, get the better of him. And, and then obviously, you know, being the guy he is and the sportsman he is, you know, he was really honourable in defeat. And there's sort of iconic photos riding around the infield with him and him saying congratulations and stuff. It was it was my greatest moment to date at that point, you know, winning the Olympic title. And, you know, 24 years of age and I was Olympic champion. It was something I'd... And against I'd grown of, up watching the Olympics, you know, and, and against one of the guys, that. against one of the yeah. guys that you've always been like, like you said, almost playing second fiddle to, like just a yeah, 
And obviously going back two years before that, the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, he'd caught me in the final. So I'd raced him there, he'd come back from the Tour de France, having won a stage, and we went head-to-head -head in Manchester. That's right, that's right, I was there, I remember that. And he, 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 in the semi-final, he did a 4.16, which at that time was Ridiculous. unheard of. He, yeah. he changed the game. Apart from Chris Boardman, which was done on Superman, Brad kind of took the, took the, the event up four seconds to another level. And um, I, he did that in the semi and I'd just done a 4.19 in my semi, so he put three or four seconds into me. And I remember sat at the side of the track thinking, I can't beat this guy, how can I beat him? He's just put four seconds into me. And I almost kind of didn't try in the final, and that was a big changing point for me, that, because I kind of gave up before I went into the final. Just thought, how can I beat this guy? How can I beat my hero or the guy I've looked up to? So he sort of humiliated me by catching me, did another 4.16 in the final one. So I was like, right, that's, I'm never going to let that happen again. You know, this has got to change. Um, so that was kind of the starting point for the next two years. Obviously, I went on to win the Worlds the year after. And yeah. then, you know, come up against him again in the Olympic final in Athens. So they were, you know, a kind of intense couple of years. And I was still, I was, I was quite mature as an athlete, but I was really young as a, as a person, as a human being. So I kind of had these really rocky moments and um, over those two years, I've kind of really matured a lot as an athlete um, and as a person and learned to sort of deal with those big occasions a lot better. Um, and because I was such a fan of the sport as well and I still am today and I've grown up watching all these people, I couldn't help but being slightly overawed or in awe of people like that at that time. You know, it was only 10 years before that or what seems like a couple of years, I was watching these people on the telly and thinking one yeah. day I'd love to be there. Yeah, um, I know that and I, I, I've referred to the story so much in the past, but, you know, how it all started for me was watching the Olympic final in 1992 in Barcelona when Chris Borgman won on the Lotus bike. And that was in 92. I was 12 years of age, and that's what got me started because I thought, I want to do that one day. I'd love to do that one day. So 12 years later, I'm in that event, in that final, with Chris Borbon at trackside walking the line for me. Yeah. And so that, that all happened in 12 years, but it felt like, you know, a handful. You know, it was only five years before that. I was at school doing it GCSE. So it's, it's, it all happened so fast. And, you know, kind of, that was uh, where it all started for me, really, kind of. So that first, 2004. That first Olympic goal, can you remember? I mean, it's outdoor. It was. I don't know if you're riding it. It was up. outdoor, but it felt indoor because it had kind of this roof on it and the yeah. sides were open. And was it fast? At was night, it... you could you could see the stands at the top of the swimming pool and you could they would erupt every now and again when someone won or something. So you could hear that from the velodrome. And it was amazing, amazing velodrome and amazing atmosphere. And it was, um, yeah, it was just, it was incredible, really. I remember going back to the village that night and you're kind of trying to, soak it all up and just think what had just happened to me and you know I, I had a team pursuit final the next night then so I, I didn't sleep a wink that night because I was Olympic champion I couldn't stop looking at this medal and, <laughs> um, and then I you know I almost didn't care what happened in the team pursuit because again I kind of selfishly thought well I've got my medal now I don't you know we're not going to beat the Aussies tomorrow they just broke the world record in the semi-final and again they'd moved the bar on in the team pursuit so the team pursuit uh, in Britain at that time was kind of a couple of years behind where I was as an individual a few years before that. So 
the Aussies did 50, uh, 356 at that time, which was phenomenal. You know, they smashed the world record by three seconds and right. we would struggle to go under four minutes at that time. So realistically, you know, if you were betting man, you think we're not going to beat these guys tomorrow. But again, I was quite young at that time and, and selfish and, you know, I kind of, again, was went through the stage of thinking, well, you know, I've got my medal, I'll get another silver medal. And I sort of hated myself in the years after that for thinking that and going in, you know, if I I should have sort of gave up the position and said, I'm not really up to it, someone else should step in. But, you know, you don't do things like that at that time because, again, it was just, it was another Olympic medal that, that you could have. So, um, obviously, I, all those things I kind of learned off and I never made that mistake twice. I never went into another Olympic final again, not wanting to win. So, I, I certainly learned from from Athens a lot even though I won and come away with three medals um one of them oh, was that's right, you, uh, in, in the team pursuit you won a uh, did Hales we got bronze in the Madison Madison well. with Hales yeah 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 that's right I remember so was the time fast in the individual pursuit uh I broke the Olympic record in qualifying I think I did 414 Oh, so really fast. And I can yeah. remember just sort of floating around like three or four seconds up on my schedule, you know, as it as it was super hot in there. And I can remember Simon Jones walking the line and just, he was sort of way past the finish line into the banking and, and I'm sort of backing off and he's still walking up and I kind of backed off the last lap and a half and he, I crossed the line, I did 4.14.9 or something. And I remember thinking that time, if that, if you'd have just gone, balls deep then it might have got close to the world record because then typically when you try and repeat it in the days after with two riders on the track and stuff i never got even close to it i think i did a 416 in the final um so it's just again you know we need to look back i, I never had a proper shot at the world record in the individual shit because i was always playing the tactical game of the rounds yeah, and trying to just game, beat trying to win. And, you need to win win the, um, the most important so, things to win yeah exactly so well, that's um so they they're fast. I remember the track itself, and yeah, I remember it just being so hot, and so fast. Yeah, I think the I mean, if you remember Sarah Almer smashed the world women's right. world record the same night in qualifying. Right. I think yeah. by by a big chunk as well, not just a, a second or two. No, she rode. But I think I think Katie broke it first, and then Sarah got up in the last round and broke it. Correct. Um, I think Sarah might actually have done it against Katie in the final. Right. Yeah. So. so there was yeah, it was records falling left, right, and centre that week. Because I remember the I remember the night before, after I'd qualified, I remember sat in dope control watching um, the kilo final, and I think the world record got broke five times with the last five riders, right down to Chris Hoy, who was last off, and had to break the world record to win the Olympic title. So it was it was an incredible um, couple of days. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, that was a fast track, no no question. So then, obviously, how many... So now, what what are we up to with uh, Olympic gold with Sir Brad? Well, I only had one at that time, and I had three other medals, so silver and two bronzes. So, But now, as we finish the cycling chapter, how many do we finish with? Uh, I think one. I think it's eight or nine now. Five gold. I always forget the other cut, uh, silvers and things. I think it's not eight. Eight in total, five gold, yeah, um, couple of bronze and one silver. Yeah, that's bloody impressive. So then, uh, did the focus shift? Like, okay, pretty much, 
I've dominated um, the track. Let's let's just uh, yeah. see what we can do I mean, on I, the road I, now. I, yeah, I can, when I look back, I, I wish I'd just stayed on the track and kind of carried on dominating the event because, like like most things, when you when you do that and you win everything, I had one. I was world champion, Olympic champion, and then you're 24, and it's like right. Well, now you know you need to go on the road. Now you need to go and conquer the Tour de France or whatever. And, um, and I don't think when I look back that I really wanted to do that at that time. When I mean, you got to think of the landscape at that time in 2004, Lance had just won his sixth tour um, and was dominating the Tour de France. And, you know, you, you'd just to make the Tour de France in those years and get in a team and even think about being competitive or in the top 10 just seemed worlds, you know, years away. There's just no chance really of how I could think that I could, get from Olympic gold in the individual pursuit to winning a Tour de France or even getting in top 10 or anything. Um, but what I did think was possible was maybe building a career on trying to win prologues or something. Yeah, right. And getting okay. a jersey in a Grand Tour or something like that. Um, as Chris Boardman had done before and thought of making a mini career out of, of doing that. Um, so that was kind of the path I kind of got led up to you know go and do that for a couple of years don't worry about the track anymore and I kind of went off and did that and, and probably didn't had a bit of an Olympic hangover for for a long time after Athens really um, just trying to you know kind of soak up what happened and come to terms with it and um, the year after we had our first child and so a lot changed again and yeah um, so 2005 was sort of kind of a bit of a I had a really bad year on the road, didn't really do anything of note early season and kind of got my act together a bit towards the end of the season and went to the World Championships in Madrid on the road and did the time trial there. And I managed to finish seventh at that time at the Worlds, um, which sort of gave me a ray of light that something, you know, I could possibly do well in, on the road, really. You know, I mean, in that World Championship, I'd kind of led most of the day and then got beat by a whole bunch of guys that subsequently a week or two later went down in the massive Fuentes um, yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think sixth was, Kashishkin was sixth, one place ahead of me. Uh, two places ahead of me was Vinokurov. Three places ahead of me was a guy called Rubens Plaza. Oh, yeah. Four places ahead of me was this guy called Gutierrez. Um, <laughs> we all got done. And then, so then I thought, well, actually, realistically, I might have, if these guys are doing what they're supposed, you know, supposed to be doing, then I probably might have sneaked a bronze medal there because Mick Rogers won it, Cancellara was second. Um, so that seventh actually wasn't as bad as, or wasn't, you know, as it, it looked better than it than it actually was on paper. If you, um, if you so I was kind of came away with that, we're quite pleased. And um, at that World Championship, I signed for Cofidis for two years. Um, and went there with a view to trying to go and make selection for the Tour de France the following year. Right. Um, so 2007 is where, you know, she all sort of kicked on again. So six, sorry, that was, so this, that was 2005. After 2005, the world's I left to credit agricole. Right. Went to coffee this for two years. So 2006 then, you know, I had this view of trying to um, do the Tour de France, which I made selection for, but I, I had a pretty, bad year that year really. I didn't really do anything um, kind of overtrained massively that year always ended up tired at the races and just lost confidence uh, massively and just ended up sort of just 
going from race to race, not really doing anything, just being part of it. I made the Tour de France team, finished the tour, and kind of I remember thinking at the end of that, well, I can always say, no, I've done the Tour de France, uh, and I finished it. Um, and I thought, you know what, I've just I've had two years on the road here. I've not really had any success on the road. I've not been enjoying it. You know, and I, at that time, I remember the guys that I'd left on the track went off to the Worlds the following year and won the team pursuit of the World Championships. And I remember thinking, God, I'd, just, I'd love to be back on the track squad enjoying it because I'm not really enjoying this road race and getting my head kicked in every week. Um, and so that, at that point, at the end of 2006, I decided that, you know, I want to go back on the track this winter on the pro track program. And I went back in with the guys and was training, you know, much better with them and not having to go out on the road all the time. And um, we did the World Cups. And then I went back to the World Championships in March that of 2007 in Palma and, and won the World Pursuit title again. We won the Team Pursuit there as well. Um, and so the, the morale and the, the motivation I got from from winning two world titles again, I took on into the road season. Plus, I'd had a really good winter's training with the track squad. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I was actually going quite well on the road. Um, and funnily, um, I had my best road season to date then, having done a whole winter's track training, which was just bizarre because I'd spent two years on the road trying to win road races and prologues and training how you're supposed to train as a road rider. <laughs> And just getting nowhere and all of a sudden i'd gone back to doing you know rolling fives rolling 4ks all on the track or window under geared work over geared work standing starts and i came out and i won the prologue of the dauphine and beat Le levi leipheimer and um i won the prologue of the four days of dunkirk you know i won three or four races that year so i was like it was a big eye opener for me that because i was like well i'm enjoying myself again I'm happy. Do you remember and I'm winning races from training on the track? When Kev, so, a couple of years ago, just started kicking everyone's ass again in in the bunch sprints, and he he literally just done a winter on the track as well. It's like, yeah, there's definitely something. Well, I'm adamant that was like you know part of his success last year was just seeing how hard he was training with us on the track as well, and he had a, a, a winter in the gym. He was training, doing you know rolling efforts, all training for the Omnium, and he had his best season on the road for years. Um, Fine. No one could touch him in the sprints again. No, no. So it's it's there's definitely something in it. Yeah, for sure. And now that they're obviously with the track, there's you know obviously the uh, the gear ratios have changed a lot. So you're not you know you're not riding a ninety two five or a ninety three six. You're 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 yeah. in, you're in the hundred inch gears. No no question. So it, it makes oh, easy. Them... I mean, last year I rode the team pursuit final in Rio on a hundred and seventeen inch gear. One hundred and seventeen. Yeah, um, exactly. And we were training on that. You know, I was training on that week in week out so yeah, yeah it's road it's it's the big gear on the road bike so it's like yeah you, you, you're developing that force production and that and that strength so it's that's it's, it it's a perfect crossover yeah so i mean it was yeah that was it was a kind of after that 2007 again we were straight back into pre-olympic year so beijing 2008 i decided to change teams again at the end of 2007 um because I think I'd, when I'd won um, the prologue at um, four days of Dunkirk, T-Mobile were there and Brian Holm approached me and, you know, they had a whole new concept to kind of, of this new team that, that was forming under Bob. And I loved the thought of it and the idea of it. So when they were Cav and, um, and yourself was there and it was, you know, we, the, well, I remember mean, we were in Stuttgart, I think, at the first get-together in October, November time. You know, there was a real good, 
atmosphere around the team. Yeah, it was a good vibe. There was a really good vibe, and there was a you know everyone was happy, and you know the team was really going places. But it took a bit of a downturn then when we got into the new year, and T-Mobile pulled out, and a lot of people's wages were being cut. <laughs> and it's funny how the team kind of went from that height to the slump it did, but yet it was for the next three or four years it was one of the most successful teams in the world. Um, incredible sort of turn of events how a lot of the riders didn't seem to be happy yet they kind of it brought the riders closer together and made a bit of a, a kind of a void between the riders and the staff and yeah it was as I say it was they won everything yeah, for years so one of the most it doesn't matter, matter whether you're racing you know the tour the giro or any race the Vuelta any race in between yeah, there was exactly. always a sprinter there that we had a team yeah. to win or a GC rider that was up there for the for the GC it was it was an incredible um you know yeah. scenario to be part of yeah. mm. it was a good times and a lot of young riders coming through that system you know like Thomas Lockwist who was never the same rider again when he left there yep um Cav obviously doing what he was doing but then some elder statesmen that really sort of helped the group gel in Hincapi and uh, Andres Clear and a few of those guys. So it was it was it was a good team. No, it was um, good. I only actually raced twice that year, the high road in two thousand and eight. I think I did Tour of, actually probably three times. I did Tour of California, some race in Holland with you where I where it was raining all day. Thirty <laughs> k. <laughs> we were in the bus after thirty k. Um, and then I did the Tour of Britain at the end of the year. That's so right. obviously that year was taken up a lot with the track program. We were, we were, hey, uh, we go, we were roommates that year. Do you remember? We were, yes. Did you do? You did the Giro that year as well, didn't you? Uh, I, you I'm not sure. I can't remember, but I just, I just never remember ever seeing you as a roommate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I was never in the room. You were year, never in the room. room. You literally no. had people to visit. Yeah. That was... that was after the Olympics, so we were five, I think five, six o'clock every morning. We were coming in. No, not we. And then racing not, all day. Not we. <laughs> <laughs> you. But, yeah. So I mean, yeah. yeah wow. Yeah, that no, year. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. But, yeah we Bloody had the oath, world mate. in that year, obviously. <laughs> and uh, I managed to win three world titles in Manchester, which was. You were in that race as well, in the Madison, if you remember. You were on my wheel when I attacked to get yeah, the lap at the end. That's right. I let you go, remember? I said, right, oh, no, off, you, off you go, mate. You can go now. I won't follow. Yeah. You can take it. looks good at home. You can have it. Yeah. In actual fact, you just rode me completely off the wheel, but that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good. Yeah, it was a really good year. As I say, we didn't race much on the road, but we did um, won three world titles in Manchester at the Worlds, and then two Olympic titles in Beijing. Um, Can't ask where I managed more. to defend my individual title against uh, Rowley. Oh, you raced Rowley, yeah, right, that's right. Yeah. But uh, um, you were on... Uh, he up with the road, didn't he? he just finished with the road and decided he was going to go on the track again and had a, like a resurgence in his career, really. Yeah, that, that, um, he was... He, and then he came back again to the road for a little while, but... Uh, yeah. Weren't you on... Uh, in training there, weren't you on world record pace in training and got a little sick? Yeah, I got sick two weeks ago, but um, yeah, back in, in Newport, I was on world record pace, but again, it was just one of the things about getting the job done because of what we were trying to do. They were trying to win three golds and the individual um, 
was the priority. But then doing the team pursuit, obviously in the later rounds, it trying to learn from the lessons of four years before, and right. you know, come straight back, put the put the medal in the drawer and forget about it, and focus on the next night, which we did, and we managed to break the world record in the team pursuit and win that goal. But then again, coming back from that, while all the lads are getting ready to go out the village and celebrate the medal went straight in the draw because we had the Madison the next night with have so it was just constant and obviously that ended in disappointment because he didn't win it and so you forgot about the two medals that you'd already won um because of the nature of what you were trying to achieve was that 2008 um, yeah yeah did you, did you not win the Madison there with Mark not in the Olympics no no oh there's the world uh, okay gotcha yeah the world but I can't remember who won actually I think the Kourishes might have won yeah, um, uh, the, the Argentine pair. So, right. Yeah, and then I so heard that uh, that. one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest disappointments that I've heard about was um, how you rolled one of your teammates in two thousand and nine at the um, Herald Sun tour. Uh, you're working for a teammate, and then you just flipped, <laughs> you just flicked him in the final and, and took the took the jet. Do you want to tell us about the story there? What happened there? So that was the year after. We did, took the Sun Tour at the end of the year. Um, I can't remember what happened. I think I'd rode the Time Trail Worlds just before we went out. Um, and I got caught by Fabian, I think, in, in that. And I was just, didn't ride my bike for 10 days. I was like, I've got to go and do this Sun Tour now. You know, I wish the season would just end. So I went out there and because I'd promised them I'd come out and ride it. Um and I th the first stage we did, um, I forget where we finished, but we finished somewhere. And um, Jan Kersipu had made a comeback at the sprinter. You know, and he, he was about 45 at the time, riding for uh, Marco Polo cycling oh, yeah. team. And was leading out a teammate at the time and, you know, really giving it some 300 to go, 200 to go. No one comes around me. And eventually Kersipu comes off and, and my teammate, and Kersipu won the stage, and the team went second, I managed to finish third. And I was like, right. So every day we were doing these massive lead-outs. Um, and for some reason, I just had gas to spare, and um, I kept finishing second and third on these sprints, which I've never done before in bunch sprints. Um, so then we got to the time trial, two days to go, and I won the time trial and found myself in the yellow jersey um, going into the crit in Melbourne. And I wasn't sort of supposed to be in that position at that time. But as it worked out, you know, he was very good. and Because he could have still won it on the last stage in um, in bonuses. Um, but decided to give him to me. And I was very grateful for it. Because, you know, it was, it was a nice race to win, to be honest. I mean, my family come from Melbourne, so yeah. they were all there. And, you know, when you're there doing it, it's, it's such a historic race. It kind of, at that time had a bit of a reputation as a bit of a party race and no one took it seriously but it's still one of the most historic races in australia so it was it was nice to win it yeah it's still going it's yeah it's still and it's yeah it's still bloody hard to win there's no question mm. everyone turns up in good nick now it's obviously at the uh at the start of the year but uh yeah, yeah everyone's in good nick and uh everyone wants to try and win it yeah so then the tour de france we went on to that we did we what did we was it 2011? Nine. Nine. Well, 2009, I ended up finishing fourth. I mean, that was Third. a year after Beijing Olympics. And 
you know, I rode the Giro that year with Garmin. I'd, I'd moved to Garmin by that point. More to be part of their team team time trial squad, which, you know, they were building at that time. And, you know, they had a lot of the world's best time trialists in Dave Zabriskie, That's and right. Magnus, and David Miller, Christian. So I wanted to be part of that for the Tour de France. And Christian had finished fifth in the Tour de France in 2008. And I thought, well, I'd love to go there and kind of ride for him the following year and and be part of that team pursuit, team time trial squad and everything. So we rode the Giro, we went there, and I just found myself climbing really well in the mountains um, at the Giro. And for me at that time, did I was you, kind of hanging on to the back of the Did you lose a ton group. of weight or anything like that? Or was it just you just climbing? Well, I'd, 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 yeah, I'd, I'd kind of slowly dropped weight over the year up to that point at the Giro. Um, I was kind of running about six kilos, five, six kilos lighter than I was on the track. Um but I hadn't took it too seriously up to that point. I was just, I'd, I'd gone to Girona and kind of was training with all the guys and going up these climbs and climbs he'd heard about in like Rocca Corba and all that. But so just getting all the training and work done without really thinking about it yeah. or making a big deal of it. So in that environment, I kind of just flourished, my form flourished and I kind of found myself at the Giro in really good shape. And after about 10 days race in two weeks, I think I was top 20 overall sort of 19th or something, which I'd never been in that position before in a Grand Tour. And at that point thinking, you know what, I'm a bit more training in between. If I look after myself this last week, you know, I think I could probably get top 20 in the Tour um, because the Tour's historically easier than than the Giro. So I sort of backed off in the third week and felt really good and nearly won the last time trial. I kind of had to ride off in the rain in Rome and, and lost the last time trial by one second. Ah, yeah. And I sort of knew then that if I just got, not got sick and looked after myself. And I remember turning up at the tour in Monaco and saying to the journalists at the time, you know, I feel fantastic here. I think I could I think I could finish. Don't laugh, but I think I could finish top 20 here. And some of them did, some of them didn't. And then on a hilly prologue, I managed to finish third behind Fabian and Contador. So I knew that the legs were there and I was sort of in the ballpark and then kind of got myself through the first week unscathed and then we had the first summit finish at Andorra which I managed to finish in the front group with Cadell and everyone and from that point on I kind of just grew in confidence really I knew and found myself again with a couple of days to go in fourth overall and going toe-to-toe with Lance on the last stage up one two to try and get on the podium so that was kind of the you know it was just a surprise really I never expected that I could do that a year before that you see, and it just, just happened on, through riding on. Yeah, just... it just happened through like a change of environment more than anything. You know, moving from England to Girona, training regularly, and, and and when I used to train five hours, that was a long ride here in the UK. But you go to Girona, and you'd be in calf stop rides that were five k. So yeah. you were just racking up volume and without really thinking about it, and you were going up thirty, forty minute climbs, chatting away without thinking about it, and riding up to. <laughs> Valtair 2000 and stuff and doing efforts up to 2000 meters and just just it was much more conducive to riding a bike in Girona there's always someone to go out with on the bike um and in in changing my environment I kind of just flourished racing um obviously my diet changed because I was living down there and it just went from strength to strength really so that's when it all um, began, right? I'm... That's when it all began, yeah. And then obviously, I went to Sky the following year, and I thought, right, that was a new team, 
and they were like, right, how did you do that last year then? I was like, well, I, this is what I did. I did the Giro and I did that. And after some stages in the Giro, we used to get on the beers and have a good laugh. <laughs> we just, it, it, they couldn't believe it. It was like, well, this is what it was like in Garmin. It was just, we had that much fun that it somehow transferred onto the bike and everyone's morale was high and we used to race well and win races. And so then in 2010, it was like, we we're just trying to do everything to the nth degree. So serious, you know, kind of bloody whatever pillows, mattresses, oh, that bloody was, you name it. things in the room that took the dust out the air. You name it. They I mean, it. and it just, it didn't happen for whatever reason. And I think the main thing was that, you know, tried to do everything twice as much so we went to the Giro and I seem to remember the Giro was uh, well I won the prologue at the Giro that's right um, and then it I can just all I can remember about that Giro is it rained every day <laughs> <laughs> and I think we crashed every day yeah and it was just everything that could have gone against us went against us from that point blame we Heyman on that time Heyman crashed and crash that many friggin times in front of the in front of the lead out, I mean, CJ crashed. Just... Uh, <laughs> CJ punctured after starting the time trial. Team oh, time trial. Yeah, that's right. I think there was one thunderstorm on a six-hour team time trial, and we copped and it, it. Hit us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just, just all those little things, kind of constant. And I just remember it being an epic Giro and um, line. I think I was seventh overall again with a week to go, and it was it in the Giro and it was kind of again it was all this is just training for the tour it was like we were just here training and not actually racing in that moment and I can remember just having a bit of a bad time on one of the morning stages going up a climb in the rain and thinking oh I better save myself for the tour and drop back to the Gruppetto and kind of that was it because it was all about the tour and when I look back I think you should have just carried on and tried to finish top 10 in the Giro um, 